0: Chapter 46 of Donald Grant. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. Donald Grant by George MacDonald. Chapter 46 A Horrible Story. The health of the Earl remained fluctuating its condition depended much on the special indulgence. There was hardly any sort of narcotic with which he did not at least make experiment, if he did not indulge in it. He made no pretense, even to himself, of seeking therein the furtherance of knowledge. He wanted solely to find how this or that, thus or thus modified or combined, would contribute to his living a life such as he would have it and other quite than that ordered for him by a power which least of all powers he chose to acknowledge. The power of certain drugs he was eager to understand. The living source of him and them and their correlations he scarcely recognized. This came of no hostility to religion other than the worst hostility of all, that of a life irresponsive to its claims. He believed neither like saint nor devil. He believed and did not obey, he believed and did not yet tremble. The one day he was better, the other worse, according, as I say, to the character and degree of his indulgence. At one time it much affected his temper, taking from him all mastery of himself. At another, made him so dull and stupid that he resented nothing except any attempt to rouse him from his habitude. Of these differences he took unfailing note, but the worst influence of all was a constant one, and of it he made no account. However the drugs might vary in their operations upon him, to one thing they all tended, the destruction of his moral nature. Urged more or less all his life by a sort of innate rebellion against social law, he had done great wrongs. Whether also committed what are called crimes, I cannot tell. No repentance had followed the remorse their consequences had sometimes occasioned. And now the possibility of remorse even was gradually forsaking him. Such a man belongs rather to the kind demoniacal than the kind human. Yet, so long as nothing occurs giving to his possible an occasion to embody itself in the actual, he may live honored and die respected. There is always, not the less, the danger of his real nature, or rather unnature, breaking out in this way or that diabolical. Although he went so little out of the house, and apparently never beyond the grounds, he yet learned a good deal at times of things going on in the neighborhood. Davy brought him news, so did Simmons, and now and then he would have an interview with his half-acknowledged relative, the Factor. One morning before he was up, he sent for Donal, and requested him to give Davy a half-holiday, and do something for him instead. "'You know, or perhaps you don't know, that I have a house in the town,' he said." the only house, indeed, now belonging to the earldom. A not very attractive house, which you must have seen. On the main street, a little before you come to the Morvan Arms. "'I believe I know the house, my lord,' answered Donal. "'With strong iron stanchions to the lower windows, and—yes, that is the house. And I dare say you have heard the story of it. I mean how it fell into its present disgrace. The thing happened more than a hundred years ago, but I have spent some nights in it myself, notwithstanding.' "'I should like to hear it, my lord,' said Donal. "'You may as well have it from myself as from another. "'It does not touch any of us, "'for the family was not then represented "'by the same branch as now. "'I might else be thin-skinned about it. "'No mere legend, mind you, "'but a very dreadful fact "'which resulted in the abandonment of the house. "'I think at time for my part "'that it should be forgotten and the house let. "'It was before the castle and the title parted company. "'That is a tale worth telling, too,' There was little fair play in either. But I will not trouble you with it now. "'Into the generation, then above ground,' the Earl began, assuming a book-tone the instant he began to narrate. By one of those freaks of nature specially strange and more inexplicable than the rest had been born an original savage. You know that the old type, after so many modifications have been wrought upon it, will sometimes reappear in its ancient crudity amidst the latest development of the race.' animal and vegetable too, I suppose. Well, so it was now. I use no figure of speech when I say that the apparition, the phenomenon, was a savage. I do not mean that he was an exceptionally rough man for his position, but for any position in the Scotland of that age. No doubt he was regarded as a madman, and used as a madman. But my opinion is the more philosophical. That, by an arrest of development, into the middle of the ladies and gentlemen of the family, came a veritable savage and one out of no darkest age of history, but from beyond all record, out of the awful prehistoric times. His lordship visibly and involuntarily shuddered, as at the memory of something he had seen. Into that region he had probably wandered in his visions. He was a fierce and furious savage, worse than anything you can imagine. The only sign of any influence of civilization upon him was that he was cowed by the eye of his keeper." Never, except by rarest chance, was he left alone and awake. No one could tell what he might not do. He was of gigantic size, with coarse black hair. The brawniest fellow and the ugliest, they say, for you may suppose my description is but legendary. There is no portrait of him on our walls. With a huge, shapeless, cruel, greedy mouth. As his lordship said the words, Donal, with involuntary insight, saw both cruelty and greed in the mouth that spoke, though it was neither huge nor shapeless. Lips hideously red and large, with the whitest teeth inside them. "'I give you the description,' said his lordship, who evidently lingered not without pleasure on the details of his recital, just as I used to hear it from my old nurse, who had been all her life in the family, and had it from her mother who was in it at that time. "'His great passion,' His keenest delight was animal food. He ate enormously. More, it was said, than three hardy men. An hour after he had gorged himself, he was ready to gorge again. Roast meat was his main delight, but he was fond of broth also. He must have been more like Mrs. Shelley's creation in Frankenstein than any other. All the time I read that story, I had the vision of my far-off cousin constantly before me, as I saw him in my mind's eye when my nurse described him. "'and often I wondered whether Mrs. Shelley could have heard of him. "'In an earlier age and more practical, "'they would have got rid of him by readier and more thorough means, "'if only for shame of having brought such a being into the world. "'But they sent him with his keeper, "'a little man with a powerful eye, "'to that same house down in the town there. "'In an altogether solitary place "'they could persuade no man to live with him. "'At night he was always secured to his bed, "'otherwise his keeper would not have had courage to sleep.' for he was as cunning as he was hideous. When he slept during the day, which he did frequently after a meal, his attendant contented himself with locking his door and keeping his ears awake. At such times only did he venture to look on the world. He would step just outside the street door, but would neither leave it nor shut it behind him, lest the savage should perhaps escape from his room, bar it, and set the house on fire. One beautiful Sunday morning, the brute, after a good breakfast, had fallen asleep on his bed, and the keeper had gone downstairs and was standing in the street with the door open behind him. All the people were at church, and the street was empty as a desert. He stood there for some time, enjoying the sweet air and the scent of the flowers, went in and got a light to his pipe, put coals on the fire, saw that the huge cauldron of broth which the cook had left in his charge when he went to church—it was to serve for dinner and supper both—was boiling beautifully, went back, and again took his station in front of the open door. Presently came a neighbor woman from her house, leading by the hand a little girl too young to go to church. She stood talking with him for some time. Suddenly she cried, "'Good Lord, what's come of the bairn?' The same instant came one piercing shriek, from some distance it seemed. The mother darted down the neighboring close, but the keeper saw that the door behind him was shut and was filled with horrible dismay he darted to an entrance in the close, of which he always kept the key about him, and went straight to the kitchen. There by the fire stood the savage, gazing with a fixed fishy eye of rapture at the cauldron, which the steam, issuing in little sharp jets from under the lid, showed to be boiling furiously with the grand prophecy of broth. Ghastly horror in his very bones, the keeper lifted the lid, and there, beside the beef, with the broth bubbling in waves over her, "'lay the child. "'The demon had torn off her frock "'and thrust her into the boiling liquid. "'There rose such an outcry "'that they were compelled to put him in chains "'and carry him no one knew whither. "'But nurse said he lived to old age. "'Ever since, the house has been uninhabited, "'with, of course, the reputation of being haunted. "'If you happen to be in its neighborhood "'when it begins to grow dark, "'you may see the children hurry past it in silence.' now and then glancing back in dread, lest something should have opened the never-opened door and be stealing after them. They call that something the Red Etten. Only this ogre was black, I am sorry to say. Red was the proper color for him. "'It is a horrible story,' said Donal. "'I want you to go to the house for me. You do not mind going, do you?' "'Not in the least,' answered Donal. "'I want you to search a certain bureau there for some papers.' "'By the way, have you any news to give me about Forgu?' "'No, my lord,' answered Donal. "'I do not even know whether or not they meet. "'But I am afraid. "'Oh, I dare say,' rejoined his lordship, "'the whim is wearing off. "'One pellet drives out another. "'Behind the love and the pop-gun came the conviction "'that it would be simple ruin. "'But we Grames are stiff-necked both to God and man, "'and I don't trust him much. "'He gave you no promise, if you remember, my lord.' I remember very well. Why the deuce should I not remember? I am not in the way of forgetting things? No, by God, nor forgiving them either. Where there's anything to forgive, there's no fear of my forgetting. He followed the utterance with a laugh, as if he would have it pass for a joke. But there was no ring in the laugh. He then gave Donald detailed instructions as to where the bureau stood, how he was to open it with a curious key which he told him where to find in the room, How also to open the secret part of the bureau, in which the papers lay? Forget, he echoed, turning and sweeping back on his trail. I have not been in that house for twenty years. You can judge whether I forget. No, he added with an oath. If I found myself forgetting, I should think it time to look out. But there is no sign of that yet, thank God. There, take the keys and be off. Simmons will give you the key of the house. You had better take that of the door in the close. It is easier to open." Donal went away, wondering at the pleasure his frightful tale afforded the earl. He had seemed positively to gloat over the details of it. These were much worse than I have recorded. He showed special delight in narrating how the mother took the body of her child out of the pot. He sought Simmons and asked him for the key. The butler went to find it, but returned, saying he could not lay his hands upon it. There was, however, the key of the front door. It might prove stiff.' Donal took it, and, having oiled it well, set out for Morven House. But on his way he turned aside to see the Comans. Andrew looked worse, and he thought he must be sinking. The moment he saw Donal, he requested they might be left alone for a few minutes. "'My young friend,' he said, "'the Lord has favoured me greatly in gratin' my last days the light o' your countenance. I ha learnt a heap frae ye, and I cannot how I could come at wantin' ye.'" "Eh, Andrew,' interrupted Donal, I dinna well ken how that can be, for it eyes seem to me ye had all the knowledge that was gone. The man can ill teach who's not gone on learning, and maybe whiles he learns mere for a scholar, nor the scholar learns for him. But it's all frae the Lord. The Lord is that spirit, and first to all the spirit of obedience, without which there's no learning. Still, my son, it may comfort ye a wee in the time to come, to think the old cobbler anroo comin' got into the new world fit her company for the help ye gid him afore he god. May the Lord make us sight o' use o' ye. Folk say a heap about savin' souls, but o'er often I don't They help to take frae them the sense o' who's saire there they're in want o' savin'. Surely a man should ken in himself mere and mere the need o' bein' saved, till he cries out and shouts, I am saved, for there's none in heaven but thee, and there's none upon the earth I desire besides thee. "'Man, woman, child, and live creature is but a portion o' thee, "'what on to let the love o' thee run o'er? "'When a man can say that, he's saved. "'And not till then, though for long years he may have been aye come nearer to that goal of a hope, "'the heart o' the father o' me, and you, and Dory, and Eppy, and all the nations o' the earth. "'He stopped, weary, but his eyes, fixed on Donal, went on where his voice had ended. "'And for a time Donal seemed to hear what his soul was saying, and to hearken with content.' but suddenly their light went out. The old man gave a sigh, and said, It's o'er for this world, my friend. It's comin'. The o'er o' darkness. But the thing it's true when the light shines is as true in the dark. Ye cannot work, that's all. God'll give me grace to lie still. It's all one. I would lie just as I used to sit in the days when I mended folk's shoon, and Dory happened to take away the light for a moment. I would sit eye lookin' down through the murk at my work, though I could not see a stime of it, the allison in my hand ready to put in the next stick the moment the light fell upon the spot where it was to gain. That's how I would lie when I'm dayin', just waitin' for the light, not for the dark, and makin' an incense offering on my patience when I had nothin' either to offer, neither thought nor gladness nor sorrow, nothin' but patience, burnin' in pain. He'll accept that. For my son, the master's just as easy to please as he's ill to satisfy. Ye seen a mither o'er her wee lassie's sampler. She'll praise it and praise it, and be right pleased with it. But how gin she was to be content with a thing in her hand. The lassie's man, when she came to have one, would have an ill time of it with his hose and his socks. But now I have a favour to beg o' ye, not for my sake but for hers. Gin ye hear the warning, ye'll be with me when I gain? It may be a comfort to myself. I dinna ken. None can tell it has hasna died afore, not even then, for deaths are so different. Doubtless Lazarus's two deaths were for far alike. But it'll be a great comfort to Dory, I'm clear upon that. She winna find herself so lonesome like, losing sight o' her old man, gin the friend of his heart be beside her when he gangs. Please, God, I'll be at your command, said Donal. No cry upon Dory, for I wouldna see less o' her nor I may. It may be years afore I get sight of her loving face again, but the same Lord's in her and in me, and we can't far be sonnet however long the time before we meet again. Donald called Dory and took his leave. End of chapter 46